I would like to ask you to turn with me in your Bible. You say, why? Because <laughs> it's the book of truth. Now, if you're tired of lies, and you're tired of political promises, and all the kind of religious palaver that goes on today, open your Bible. Open the Word of God. In this church for the last 40 years, I believe we're going on 41 years, Brother Roger. 41 years. Been here 41 years. We have tried to establish the absolute necessity of studying God's Word and reading God's Word. And we want you to follow along in these messages. What I have to say does not amount to a hill of beans. And that's what my mom used to say. I used to wonder where the hill of beans was. But uh, what I have to say doesn't amount to anything if it's not Scripture, if it's not the Word of God. So, Matthew chapter 5, two verses of Scripture, verses 17 and 18. Matthew chapter number 5, verses 17 and 18. The Lord Jesus is speaking, and he says clearly, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. I want us to think this morning about the subject of the perpetuity of God's law. The perpetuity of God's law. There is a perpetuity of God's church. For instance, in Matthew 16, 18, Christ said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The devil and his crowd will never be able to shut down the church of the Lord. There is a perpetuity of God's word. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 23, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth, didn't say it used to live, it liveth, present tense, and abideth, present tense, how long? Forever. They may be able to take the Bible out of our hands but they cannot ever take the Bible out of our hearts. It lives forever. There is a perpetuity of God's law. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. He uses a little word, as a matter of fact, two little words. One is the little word J-O-T, jot. It is the Hebrew word J-O-D, jod. It is the smallest letter 
in the Hebrew alphabet. It's like an accent mark in size. Then he uses the word tittle. This is a point or a spike on a Hebrew letter which distinguishes it from all other letters. Now a good English translation of all that is this, not the dot of an I or the cross of a T shall pass away from the law until it is completely fulfilled. It is here to stay. Now let's look first of all at the nature of God's perpetual law. The nature of God's perpetual law. I want to give you three synonyms this morning that will throw a great deal of light on that word perpetuity or perpetual. Those synonyms are, number one, that which is eternal. Synonym number two, that which is permanent. And synonym number three, that which is unceasing. Now, not all of God's laws are perpetual. Moses was in the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And while there, God delivered his law to Moses. There were, first of all, the moral laws. The moral laws called the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments. Secondly, there were the ceremonial and dietary laws. He taught them how to worship the ceremonial law. He taught them how to eat the dietary laws. And thirdly, there were the civil laws, which were a act of preservation and protection from one another. Now John Gill says it is the moral law or the Ten Commandments which is spoken of in our text. The context speaks of the moral law of God. The ceremonial law does not exist today. Though there are some churches, if they had a temple, they would practice that law of ceremony. But it does not exist today. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 and verses 8 and 9. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things which can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year make the comers thereunto perfect. Sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings for sin thou wouldst not. They do not exist today. Neither did God have pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then saith he, I am come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. He took away the ceremonial law that he could give us something far greater and better than that law. The dietary law, and you'll be glad to know that, does not exist today. Maybe it should. 
I don't know. But it does not exist today. For in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, every creature of God is good. And nothing to be refused if it be eaten with thanksgiving. There are some people that'll live and die and never know how good shrimp is. They just never will. Because there are many places in the Old Testament where certain foods were forbidden and they were called unclean. We do not live under that restriction today. The dietary law does not exist today. By the way, do you remember that Simon Peter was called upon by Cornelius to have a meal with him? And while they were talking and the meal was supposedly being presented, about 12 o'clock came and Simon Peter wanted to eat. So he goes up on the rooftop and when he's up there, God let down a sheet out of heaven that contained all kinds of animals. And God said, eat, kill and eat. And Peter said, oh Lord, you've made a mistake. I've never eaten anything that is unclean. But the Lord corrected him and said, That which God has cleansed, call not their common. There is no common food today. There is not some nourishing food today that we cannot eat because it's not Friday or it's not Monday or it's not Tuesday. Do you understand that? The dietary law does not exist today. The civil law does not exist today. We do not go out and kill witches. Nor do we stone to death children who disobey their parents. That was in the civil law in the Old Testament. That law does not exist today. We're talking about the moral law of God. It is a perpetual law. It was this law that was written in stone, not like the other aspects of the law. Why in the world did God inscribe the Ten Commandments in stone? Because they're perpetual, they're continual, they're not terminated. The law was binding before Moses ever came along. Even in Adam's day. What Cain did to Abel was murder. The law existed even before it was given unto Moses. And the law is still binding today. I've been preaching for a few years. And I tell you what, when I get to that particular point, there's some folks that gag. The law is still binding today because they do not believe that it is pertinent to our day and our time. They don't believe the Ten Commandments has anything to do with believers. And I just let them gag. There are perversions of the law. When we talk about the law of God, what are we talking about? We're talking about the Ten Commandments. You find them listed for you in the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. Notice God spake all these words saying, 
And then he begins to enumerate the commandments. There are ten of them. Exodus chapter 20. The first one is found in verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second one is found in verse number 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. The third one is found in verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The fourth one is found in verse number 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The fifth one is found in verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother. The sixth one is found in verse 13. Thou shalt not kill. Now we need to make just a slight comment on the word kill. They're using it here meaning to murder. There is a difference between killing and murdering. If you say that that verse is saying in the commandment you can't kill anybody, God told King Saul to go into Amalite and kill the king and to kill the men and to kill the women and to kill all the children, but he never said murder them. Whenever you begin to enter that word murder, you're talking about the intent of hatred and retaliation in the heart. Somebody's coming into your house and they're going to do you bodily harm and they're going to do bodily harm to your family. You say, well, what do I do? Do I pray for them? Shoot them. God expects that of you. A man that won't provide for his own family is lower down than an infidel. That's what the Bible says. So we're talking about murder in verse 13. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. Verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. There's a seventh one. Verse 15 is the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. And verse 16 is the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And the last one is found in verse 17. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. Now let's talk about some perversions of the moral law that have been introduced down over the years that people have taken and tried to besmirk the law by saying, well, what it really means is this or that it doesn't pertain to us today. First of all is the antinomian. The antinomian concept. There is a Hebrew word nomos. It is the word for law in the Old Testament. Anti means instead of or to replace. The man who is an antinomian claims that since he is under grace, he is no longer responsible to the law of God. He would say that God's law is no longer binding on him because he's under grace. And grace has replaced the law. That's the antinomian. Be careful you don't get that disease because it's fatal. The Lord Jesus diluted the law. There are those who believe that's the reason for the New Testament. That it was too stiff in the Old Testament. That what I've just read for you is the Ten Commandments. It's too rigid. So the Lord Jesus made it a little easier for people to keep. Well, the truth is, the Lord Jesus put teeth in it. 
Then there are those who hold to the burial detail. These people would have you believe that the moral law died when Christ died on the cross. It's not even in existence today. Way back yonder, in the same title of church, Grace Baptist Church. Way back yonder, it's been a number of years ago. You know, you stay with the church 41 years, you're going to find out a few things. I mean, you just are. Folks are going to find out a lot of things about the preacher, as well as the preacher finding out about the people. We had a man in that church, he was a Sunday school teacher. And on Sunday morning, he taught that Jesus Christ, when he died, that he nailed the Ten Commandments to the cross. And therefore, they needed to be buried and forgotten. His words. I called him into my office. I said, I want to talk to you just a little bit. There's some things you can teach in this church. There are some things you cannot teach in this church. One thing is this. It was not that Jesus Christ nailed the Ten Commandments to the cross. It was the Ten Commandments that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. He's the broken law of God on the cross of Calvary. You know, we got along all right after that. But we had a few choice words about it. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 12 and verse number 22. I have to preface it with this. Every word in your Bible is important. The Lord didn't look and see that he had a half-written Bible and we got to manufacture some more words and fill it up. No, every word is essential and important in the Bible. Wherefore, Romans seven twelve and 22, wherefore the Lord, or the law, pardon me, wherefore the law is holy. Where do you find that? You find it in the New Testament. Well, he should have said the law was holy. Because we don't have a law anymore. No, that's not what Paul said. He said it still is holy. It's always been holy. It always will be holy. And the commandment is holy, just, and good. And then he captures it with this statement, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. The apostle Paul said that after his conversion. He was under grace. But he also said, I delight in the word of God, the law of God in the inward man. Now, why the law of God must be perpetual? Why must it be unceasing? Number one, because the Lord Jesus did not come to destroy it. He did not come to unplug it. He did not come to abolish it. In Matthew 5, 17, think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. He didn't come to do that. He didn't come to put away the law. Now, if the Lord Jesus did not abolish the law, then you tell me who has that power and authority to do it today. Maybe it's Madeline Murray O'Hare. Maybe it's the Supreme Court. Maybe it's the Civil Liberties Union. Maybe it is our astute members of Congress. 
It could be Black Lives Matter. It might come from Antiva. But the Lord Jesus didn't come to destroy it. He even took time to explain it. And if the Old Testament doesn't pinch you, read your New Testament. God will get all over you with that one. The Lord Jesus explained the law. He told us what the law meant. There are two excellent illustrations in your Bible. Same passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 5. Look at verses 21 through 22, and it concerns the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill or murder. What did Christ say about that? He said in verse 21, followed by verse 22, You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill or murder. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you. Now, we probably would say, now this is where you need to tighten your seatbelt. Okay? But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. He said that's what that commandment means. Thou shalt not kill. And then he follows it in verse number 18. Same chapter. Let's go to verse 28. I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And that follows verse 27. You've heard it was said by them of old time, don't commit adultery. Well, Brother Cousard, I've never committed adultery. Well, read on. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Well, who said that? The Lord Jesus Christ. So what I'm saying is Jesus Christ explained the law. Not only did he explain the law, but he defended the law. In Mark chapter number 10, There was a rich ruler who came to Christ. And in verse 17 it reads it this way. When he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus called unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one that is God. And if you pay close attention, the commandments, the Ten Commandments... The first four of them are directed from man to God, but the rest of the commandments are directed from man to man, how we treat other people. And he's dealing with the latter part of those Ten Commandments. He says to the rich young ruler, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. 
Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. And the rich ruler said, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. Must have been a Democrat. Huh? But he forgot a very important one. The Lord Jesus said, One thing you still lack. What is the one thing that he lacked? He didn't observe the tenth commandment, Thou shalt not covet. And that was his problem. He had amassed a great deal of wealth because of a covetous spirit, but he wouldn't own up to that. He said, I've got the other commandments covered pretty good, but the Lord said, you missed a very important one. Thou shalt not covet. Did you know you cannot play the lottery without coveting. Now, you'll never make me believe in a million years you park your car, go into a 7-Eleven or whatever they're called anymore in this day and in this time, and you play the lottery just to impress the people. No, you play, play it to win. What are you going to win? You win what belongs to somebody else. You say, well, I don't like that. It's going to get better before we leave this morning. You cannot gamble with cards. You cannot do that without coveting. You want what the other person has. Jesus Christ added a little spunkolus to the law as it was recorded in the Old Testament and it gets pretty tight in the New Testament. Jesus Christ explained the law. He defended the law. And Christ Jesus obeyed the law. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 7, this said, I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. He's quoting from a passage of Scripture, the Lord is, that occurred over in the book of Psalms 47 through 8, where it says, thy law is within my heart. I tell you the truth, folk. I just don't know whether I can believe a person's ever been saved if he doesn't have honor for the law of God in his heart. The perpetuity of it. The law must be perpetual. It must be continual because of its purpose to condemn the sinner. God never gave the law to save anybody. It was to give evidence that all men need the law because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul makes this clear in the book of Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 and verse 24. He says, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, watch that, to bring us to Christ. The purpose of the law was to act as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. What's the purpose of a schoolmaster? Is it not to teach? What does the law teach? 
The law teaches that if you think you can get to heaven by what you do, you're crazy as a June bug. That's what it's teaching. No man has ever been saved by trying to keep the law because no man can keep the law of God. It's too holy. It's too perfect. We cannot do it. But He gave it in order to bring conviction and guilt to us to make us see our need of a Savior. The law was never designed to save. It was designed to produce guilt and despair in the heart of the sinner to drive him to Christ. Sinners cannot be saved without the law to condemn them. The gospel is helpless without the law. Condemnation precedes salvation. And if there is no condemnation, then you don't need to be saved to start off with. I don't know who wrote this. If I can give it in poetic form. You know, for a long time in my life, especially when I was going to school, especially when I was in elementary school, so every poem had to be certain to match the next words down. If it didn't match the next words down, the poem just didn't have any meaning. This thing, you have to listen to it. My hopes of heaven were firm and bright, but since the precept came, and that's the law, with a convincing power and light, I find how vile I am. My guilt appeared... But small before, before I got a hold of the law, I knew I'd do a few things wrong. My guilt appeared, but it was small before, till terribly I saw how perfect, holy, just, and pure was thine eternal law. Then felt my soul the heavy load, my sins revived again. I had provoked a dreadful God, and all my hopes were slain. That's what the law does. It takes away your hope. That's why Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Again in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, the apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the moral law sin? God forbid. Nay, Paul continues, I had not known sin, but by the law. Now listen to that statement, church. I had not known sin, but by the law. Now, if you're driving your car, and you're going 40 miles an hour or 50 miles an hour in town, and all of a sudden, you hit your brake and you slow it down to 35 or to 30, and you look in your rear view to see if the patrol was looking at you when you were going 45 and 50. You know why you do that? Because there's a law against it. And it's the law that makes it bad for you and bad for me. If there were no law, you could drive just like 90% of the people out here on this highway every day. If there were no law. But when you attach a law to it, watch out. 1 John 3, 4, sin is a transgression of the law. 
That's the definition of sin. Sin is a transgression, a breaking of the law. And if there is no law, there is no sin. It is sin that gives evidence with the law to our transgressions. Hope you see that. I had not known sin but by the law. And then Paul says this, For I had not known lust, L-U-S-T, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. Boy, that set him straight. The law must be perpetual, continual, because without it, sin goes unchecked. Anarchy rules and depravity prevails. Our generation today is characterized by one word, lawlessness. Lawlessness. The governors are lawless. The mayors are lawless. The protesting groups are lawless. There is no law. Nobody's going to stop me. And they know that's so because they've already gotten into trouble and somebody gave them a lollipop for it. Somebody said once in a while, and I run it to this statement, what do you think the answer is? Law enforcement. You'd be surprised how to get rid of all this mess today if the law of the land was enforced. Well, I don't want to hurt AOC's feelings. Where there's no law, there's no sin. This is where we are today. We've thrown God's law out the window and therefore nothing is sin anymore. Today we're living in a time of lawlessness, death, and despair. Compounded with the fact of stupidity. You know, ignorance is not the worst thing. Stupidity is worse than ignorance. You can teach ignorance. You can teach You can't teach stupidity anything. And we have a stupidity-filled government today. Stupid! Get back to the law of God. Read the law of God. And that law is just as applicable today as it ever was when God gave it to Moses. The law-breakings of God's people. Let me mention quickly there are three things that must be accomplished in that the law must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. The law-breakings of God's people have to be satisfied. When I say God's people, I mean those who were chosen by the Lord before the foundations of the world, and every last one of them have come in time to receive Christ as Savior. Our sins have to be satisfied in the eyes of God. Our law-breakings must be satisfied. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21, God hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God by faith in him. And what about that beautiful verse in Isaiah 53, 6? All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ took our law-breakings, and they were put on him, and he died for our sins according to the Scripture. In the 11th verse of Isaiah 53, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. I tell you this, that when God the Father saw his Son becoming sin for us and was made to be sin for us, when God saw that, his attitude, God's dealing with the people who were sinners by nature, birth and practice, was lifted because His Son paid their price on the cross. And God was satisfied. That's why the law and how the law must be fulfilled. The law breakings of God's people must be satisfied. Romans 10 forces Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. I'm so thankful, church, today that my righteousness is not to be determined on what I do and what I don't do. It's to be determined by what Christ did for Dan Cozart on the cross of Calvary. He's the one I'm trusting in. The law must be fulfilled and accomplished in the personal life of every believer. That's important. Romans 8, 4 says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, how can the righteousness of the law be fulfilled in those of us who know Him? The Bible says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. When we as God's people Walk after the Holy Spirit. God's law is being fulfilled in us. When we disobey, it is entirely a different matter. While the believer is no longer under the condemnation of the law, the law serves him as a standard of righteousness that he should live by. Now, folk... Has there ever been a time when it's all right to commit adultery? Will there ever be a time when it's right to commit adultery? No. No, it never will be, never has been, never will be. Then you know what? We must deduce that it's wrong to commit adultery. It's still in effect today. Ladies and gentlemen, it's still in effect today. And not just that particular commandment. All of the holy commandments of God. In regeneration, that is when God quickens a sinner, gives him life. God gives us a disposition toward righteousness. Yes, ma'am. We begin to love the law that we hated. And so will everybody else who hates the law. When they come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, they begin to love the law of God. The climax of this is our glorification when we shall be in His image and in His likeness. I preached in a church several years ago. Well, I've preached twice, at least two or three times there, over in the state of Louisiana. (laughs) 
And uh, one of the tenets that that church was beginning to adopt at that particular time was that the law was dead. And you don't have to worry about the law anymore. You just live any way you want to because you're under grace. And if you're under grace, you can't be under law. And uh, I, I kind of upset the cart over there a little bit. And I had some long-distance calls from those people and said, Brother Cozart, we did not know that you don't believe in grace. You believe in grace and law. I said, where'd you hear that from? It says it's been talked in our church. I said, well, they're not talking right. They're not telling you any truth. I've never believed a man was ever saved by the law except, except, and I say it with tongue in cheek, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who ever kept the law completely. Only one. In that he earned, I know he was righteous, I know he was God incarnate, I'm not saying anything to discredit that, I'm saying that Christ earned perfect righteousness by perfectly keeping the law. He's the only one who could do it. They had a Sunday school teacher in that church who taught a mixed class. I'm not making any of this up. A mixed Sunday school class of young women and young men. And the teacher who stood up was one of these who had been liberated from the law, purely under grace, and made this statement. I want all of you ladies to know something this morning. He's teaching a mixed class I could commit adultery with you any time I wanted to and it'd be all right because I'm under grace. Now, my dear friends, not only will that kill your church, it'll kill you. God wasn't looking for something to do when he gave the Ten Commandments. He gave us a law. The law must be fulfilled and accomplished in our personal lives, the personal lives of every believer. And finally, and I close with this, the penalty of the law must be served and fulfilled upon all unbelievers. Here lately, I take my radio, I dial from one station to another, looking to hear some preacher that's got something to say do you know what I mean? And I, I, I've heard so much love, I'm getting sugar diabetes. I never heard so much love in my life. Had God loved you? Oh, it would break God's heart if He sent you to hell. God's not going to. God is a God of love. Wake up and smell the coffee. You read your Bible. Who in the world do you think sent the flood in Noah's day? Somebody answer me on that one. It was God making a love gesture to his people. Not at all. Not at all. So the penalty of the law must be served and fulfilled upon all unbelievers. And it is with this one last verse, Revelation 21 verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers, and the sorcerers, 
and the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There's a sweet passage. I said that was the last reference. There's a sweet passage of Scripture in Psalm number 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his, watch it, his delight, watch it, here it comes, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. My dear friends, grace is not dead, neither is the law dead. It is not a way for us to be saved, But I tell you this, it provides us a standard of some things in our lives that need to be attacked from time to time that we might walk worthy of the salvation that he has so freely bestowed upon us. The perpetuity of God's holy law. Let's stand please for prayer.